sometimes we get asked like, what was our mission? What, what, what was the purpose of us going? And I think that's a very good question actually because one needs to define the mission because we have all kinds of missionaries in this world that go doing all kinds of things. And for us it was definitely church planting, pioneer church planting in Portugal and most evangelical churches tend to be small so that means we have to start from scratch, from zero. That means we have to meet people on a regular basis, getting to know people and how do we bring them into a, a, a congregation, a community, uh, a family of believers, whatever you want to call that and then develop a church uh, group off of that. That takes some time. Somebody will ask us, well, how long did it take for your first converts, first yeah. people to be baptized? We have to walk with people in their ups and downs for about eight years before the majority of them made decisions to follow Christ. The idea is to, for us, was very simple, is to preach the gospel in a very clear way live it out on a day-to-day -day basis, whether we'd go to a cafe, whether we'd meet people, whether we'd go on, on holidays or vacation with them or so on, just live out our faith. And I think we have an enormous model in that in Scripture, Jesus. Jesus lived out His faith, His, his commitment to God, the Father, on a day-to-day -day basis, and the disciples were walking alongside of Him and learning from that. We basically had to revert to, okay, what, I know there's a term out there, what would Jesus do? Or how did Jesus do this? And then we realized that there was this everyday stuff that Jesus did, walking alongside of a, a lake, uh, healing people as they were struggling with different things in different places, uh, in, in different ways. And then we realized this touches people's hearts and this is then we have to have the courage to take it to the next level. And Jesus had the courage and he was, he, he took it to the next level. Okay, so you saw this now, where is your commitment? Whether that be the 12, whether that be the 70 or whatever group that he was speaking to. And that's something that we had to do over the years. We had to be able to take it to the next level. Okay, where's the commitment now? You, you've made a commitment to follow, you want Jesus, you want Jesus in your life. How does this, how does this move, move you further? And that's where we would have um, major uh, Bible studies in the area, for instance, of uh, discipleship, of um, helping people understand what it meant to be baptized as a believer, what it meant to follow Jesus on a regular basis, what it meant to live a moral life, an ethical life, and those kind of things. And that, with a group of five, six, ten people, it really gets you into all kinds of good discussions. This person that was talking with us, very wise man, he said, you know what, Otto, you need to realize one thing, that when in 1989, January 23rd, you stepped off the plane, TWA plane, in Lisbon, Portugal, don't, th don't think that God stepped off the plane with you. He was already there, working. The Holy Spirit was already there. Scripture was already there. Yes, not that many people, but they were already there. And so, as we were leaving in December of last year, this past year, kind of our final goodbye officially, we realized that the good work is going to continue. We have total faith in that. Good morning. Let's give a warm welcome as you have for Otto and Marjorie Eck. We're so glad for them to be here this morning. I'll have you guys stand in the middle. So and you guys can come on around here and we'll surround them. We'll surround them. Uh, good morning. My name is Jason. I'm the outreach director here at LBC. And uh, man, 33 years they spent in the field. Um, in Portugal and help plant four churches. That is quite a time commitment and dedication right there. So, yes, yeah, for sure. So we just want to appreciate them. So the reason Otto and Marjorie are here this morning is because LBC has supported them through the years, and now they are retired, whatever retirement means when it comes to ministry That's uh, and, and missions. It's, it's a kind of a nebulous term for that. But uh, anyway, because they go back and they'll still... 
go visit in Portugal and visit the churches and stay connected with them as well. But we just wanted to have them here to just appreciate them and to honor them and thank them for a job well done. Thank them for answering the call to, um, to God to go and take the gospel to less reached people. So we're so glad that they could join us this morning. Um, I do have a question for you. So one of the questions, I, just to put this in context, the video that you saw was a four-minute snippet of about an hour and a half conversation. So we wish you could have heard all of it because there's a lot of great information. But what they were talking about there was at the very beginning um, of their ministry. So it's a long-term commitment to, to plant a church. It takes a lot of time to get to know the language, to get to know the people, um, and come alongside of them. So the que one question that I have for you is, how long was it before you got your first, like, first church elders and pastors at the churches? Um, yes, good morning. And we just uh, want to take this moment to really thank LBC one more time for the special people that you've been to us, the special support you've been to us and the ministry in Portugal all these years. And it's because of your commitment that there's hundreds of people. We figure about two, 300 people that are walking with the Lord right now because of your commitment. And we thank you for that. That We need churches behind every missionary. There needs to, need to be churches. So, yes, it, it does take a little bit longer because uh, the churches, all of them were started basically from zero. And because the churches are so small, as we indicated, most evangelical churches in our area are 20, 30 people. And so we felt very committed that we couldn't pull out families out of these churches to start ours. And we'd see whether God was committed. And God is committed. If we're committed, he is committed to see his church grow. And yes, it takes a little bit longer because you're starting from teaching the very basics and it took us about, uh, like Marjorie indicated up there, in some cases about eight years for people to make a commitment to Jesus. That is normal in most situations. I know that's hard to believe, but that's true. And then it takes another four or five years to develop leadership. And we realized probably about year 12, 13, around that is where we had our first uh, people. We always had people up front. Don't get me wrong. We had people pray publicly and read scripture and so on. But where we could realize these are leaders. These are people that are going to continue the ministry. And it wasn't until around 20, 25 years of ministry that we could actually feel like, okay, we can let them go. I know that's the, probably the wrong term, but we, we, can, you know, we can leave the nest and they'll be okay. And we as, as uh, you as a church and we as the church planters, we have a commitment to help these churches along as they're growing. Even now, continue to pray for the churches in Portugal. Say, yes, it takes a little while, but it's a well worth the commitment. Thank you. And they still go back and visit and encourage the church back there, just like uh, Paul did in the early church. So we thank them for that. And also joining me on stage, I'm sorry, I forgot to introduce our missions leadership team, Charles Riley, Bobette Wellwood, Geraldine Stewart, Eloy Romero, and Jenna DeCruz. And we've got two that are uh, wounded in battle right now that are, that are out today. Unfortunately, they couldn't be with us. But uh, anyway, I'm blessed to be able to work with this group. We, uh, we call it MLT for short, just to make it easy. So um, I'd like for Pastor Eric, if he could come up and join us and pray for, uh, pray for the X. And, and just to, to give you the idea, when you ask, why, why does it take so long? Hopefully you got a great picture there um, for people to come to know Christ, to be mature in their faith, and then to lead. Uh, and just what a journey. And so we're thankful for their service, but also thankful for our church for praying and supporting and sending money and all the things for that to happen. Uh, so yeah, we just want to praise God for that and uh, pray for them in their next journey. So please pray with me. Dear Jesus, we're so thankful uh, for the work you've done through the X, uh, through the faithful service, the commitment to teaching the scriptures, uh, to raising up leaders to love you and follow you. And uh, we pray for those churches in Portugal, that they'll continue to uh, preach the word as taught, that they'll continue to uphold uh, your word in all facets of life, uh, that they'd continue uh, to disciple people, to reach the lost uh, for your glory. And just pray you continue to encourage those churches as uh, the X are here. 
And we pray for their next chapter, whatever that is, that uh, they would find great joy and peace in serving their local church and uh, pouring into people and to maybe even help in future uh, missionaries go and do what they did. And Lord, we pray for our church. We continue to send people out uh, that you would be known on all the earth to all the nations. Uh, pray for young people to see that vision and passion. And we're just so thankful for the work you've done through the X. Uh, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you, brother. Wow. Thank you, guys. Love you, guys. Thank you. Okay. Test, test. All right. So uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we would love to get an opportunity to meet you. So please make sure you stop by right outside the, um, the lobby here to the left. There's a kiosk. Um, the X will be out there as well. Um, they'll be out across under the easy up across the courtyard there. So you can stop by and say hi to them too. So uh, welcome. Um, this, uh, oh, one more housekeeping note. Next week is our uh, church business meeting. So uh, that will be at 1145 after services. And I believe it's in the activity center. Um, if you're a member, you can vote. Um, if you are not a member, you can't vote, but you could, you're welcome to attend if you would like. So we'd love to see you there. Um, this summer or this Sunday is our summer uh, outreach teams report, a little different than the usual Sunday. And uh, normally we have a few teams that will go out during the summertime for a couple of weeks. This year was a little weird. We had COVID, so we had issues with that. We had the war in Ukraine, and we had issues there too. So unfortunately, we couldn't have three full teams that we were looking for to go to Kenya, Romania, and Uganda, but we did have one team that was able to go to the Uganda, and my wife, Leticia, and I were um, privileged and honored to represent LBC going to visit our partners in Kenya with International Christian Ministries. And uh, then from Kenya, we jumped over to Romania and visited our partners with Children to Love Romania. And I tell you what, it was a blessing. It was, uh, we were so encouraged. We went to help encourage them and reinforce that relationship that we have with them. But, uh, but we were incredibly encouraged ourselves, and uh, it was a blessing to get to know their ministries better. So, um, and then after that, I got to go over and jump over and meet the uh, Uganda team in Uganda for a couple of weeks, and that was a blessing. So why do we do a summer report? Uh, there's a lot of you that, uh, many of you that pray for us, support us, support those teams, and um, we just want you to know what's going on and keep you informed and say thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your support. It means a ton to our ministry partners. It means a ton to us. Uh, they're super encouraged when, uh, when we take the time to come across the world to, uh, uh, to minister with them. So thank you for your support. So now if you'll turn your attention to the screen, we'll see our summer missions video report. <clears throat> this trip changed my view of the world and of God. Um, seeing the families there have nothing um, but God to, to hope in. The fact that God uses imperfect people like us and he takes us overseas to visit people, um, you know, and to encourage and to love them. I have put my hope and trust in other things like money, work, friends, uh, relationships. Um, I put that before Christ. God uses us for things that we didn't necessarily expect him to use us for. We were able to share the gospel even when it was hard, when there was people from different religions. Sometimes it's just about obedience. The biggest transformation that I saw while I was on this trip was actually in my own heart. All they have is Christ and they really show that and um, that was very, very encouraging to see uh, and bring home. The gospel was shared in almost everything that we did while we were there, whether it was in Sunday school and a, a quick gospel presentation to the kids. There's over 200 kids connected to Mercy and Mercy Ministries at the school, the boarding school, the international school. We uh, helped out with a lot of things. We helped out at the Sunday school. Uh, me and Tam got to preach a lot. 
to spend time with them, teaching, listening, just spending time sharing Jesus with each other. They call grandparents their grandfathers Jaws, and we became Jaws to many of those kids that were there that don't have one or don't know of one, uh, some that don't even know who their father is. We painted, yes, manual labor. We helped paint a, uh, one of the rooms that uh, LBC helped fund uh, for the orphanage. Whether it was at a medical outreach and the gospel was being shared to um, everyone that came through, but particularly to Muslims um, who came for medical care. At the kids camp, uh, to the teenagers and the university students um, that are Mercy kids that are sponsored by Mercy but might not necessarily know Christ. There was a girl that showed up late and she kind of missed the first part of the, um, the gospel presentation. So someone asked me if I would speak with her. And so she's from the Muslim religion. So she was asking me a lot of hard questions, but I just opened the Bible and did my best to give her a gospel presentation about what I believe to be true. And Meredith called me over and we sat down there and we began to talk to her about the Lord. Then she looked at me, looked at me with these piercing eyes, and she, like this, like you're not going to convince me. And then she goes, "Did God kill God?" I paused, and then I read the whole 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions, and that God struck the Lamb for us. And then I told this young girl, and I looked at her, and I go, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, Meredith is a sinner, we cannot save ourselves. Good works cannot save us. It took a perfect savior, and God was willing to do that to save you. That was really cool. And she stayed for it, she didn't leave, I didn't scare her away. Uh, missions is more than just uh, going and helping for a week and then coming back. Uh, missions is actually going and uh, reaching people with the gospel of Christ, training uh, pastors, elders, and planting churches that can uh, survive on their own. Went from uh, Kampala to Palisa, and outside of Palisa was a church that we were helping dedicate. And I found that LBC's Market of Hope had significantly funded that building. What impacted me the most is there was a man there on the ground, on his knees, wearing a pair of shorts. And you could see that his lower legs were probably from polio, were not developed, and they were very thin, and he couldn't walk on them. It impacted me to see how much this man wanted to be in the church and how much he wanted to worship. Because during the worship time, I found that man, I saw him, there was such joy in him with his hands up, singing and praising God. And I just thought, Lord, I hope you have a special place in your kingdom for this man, because he, he left a mark on me, I can tell you. All of a sudden, when we're close to our base and a, a mercy staffer is out there, she flags us down and she goes, we have to pick up an abandoned baby. Can you help? And we go, can we help? Of course. So we went in the van. We went to a gas station. We met some medical workers there, and there, we, there he was, an eight-month-old. He was the child of an HIV mother who was abusing him, and she abandoned him. We had the honor of delivering it to the Mercy Village who took care of him. And then the next day, Kobe and I got to go to the medical center and um, take him for his first medical checkup when he finally relaxed and fell asleep on my shoulder. That was just a really sweet thing. That's the reality of what Mercy does on a day-to-day -day basis. Some people have asked, you know, why don't we just send him a check instead of sending a team? The value of sending a team is the encouragement that that church gets, for one. Uh, they also get the relationship with the body of Christ overseas, and it also, brings unity like few things I've seen uh, bring unity in the body of Christ in our own church. This was amazing. The prep going into it, getting to bond with our team and getting to see uh, what Christians uh, live like uh, all the way on the other side of the globe is truly eye-opening. And I think everyone should do it at least once if they are able.
So <laughs> it was truly a blessing to go over there. If you have never been, um, I would encourage you to consider going on a short-term team. It'll change your life. Um, like Tam was saying in the video, one of those churches was built with the funds for Market of Hope. And it's so cool to go over there and see the tangible things that, um, that you are helping fund. Um, Leticia and I also got to do a Market of Hope distribution in, uh, in Kenya. So it was super special. And you see that money and those things are going to those people. And then the, the joy that they have from that is amazing. So anyway, I encourage you to do that. Market of Hope is coming up soon, uh, October 23rd. So make sure you mark your calendars for that as well. Um, if you'd like more information on missions, outreach, we would love to chat with you. Our MLT members will be up here in the front after uh, services, so please come on up and, and uh, we can have a conversation about that. Uh, before we invite up our speaker for today, we have a special treat. I'm gonna ask the guys to cut the, uh, the online feed for a minute because I wanna get Thank you, everybody. Um, hello. Uh, as uh, I was introduced, I'm Nathan, and uh, I'm here with my wife and daughter, and we serve overseas in Central Asia, um, where it's our hard to see a church planted in a group of people who have never before had a church uh, or the gospel. So we were sent out by LBC in 2019, and first before I share today's message with you, I just wanted to thank you all so much for uh, how generous you've been and all the support and prayers that we've had over the last uh, two and a half years. So we went out only three years ago, but um, I think you can identify with this. So much has changed in the past three years, right? Uh, for one, there are a lot more of you, it seems, in the pews today than I seem to remember back then. Um, and we're so thankful that you're here and you're calling LBC your home. Uh, and we're just so thankful to God for the ways that he's multiplied our church, even in this difficult time. And for many of you, the last few years were a very hard time. And I think especially of those dear brothers and sisters in Christ that we've had to go be with the Lord. Uh, for you who have lost loved ones, I just want you to know that um, we've prayed for you. And for you who are sick and in crisis, um, our prayers have been with you. Um, every night with our daughter, we're praying for you and thanking God for you. That's part of our bedtime routine. So, so for these past two and a half years, um, our focus on the field has been learning language and culture uh, in this people group um, of the country that we're in, in Central Asia, and this language is a Persian language. 
So um, we plan to actually use this language as a bridge to learn a minority language, which has no access to the Bible or to the church yet. Uh, and the majority people group in our country, they're considered unreached still. They're nowhere near uh, the 2% reached. Um, and, but there are a few small churches. Uh, however, it's our hope and ambition to take the gospel even further uh, beyond that to a group that has never before heard the gospel, never had a church, no Bible, nothing. And as you can imagine, our life has been pretty wild for the past several years. Uh, so we've just been working as hard as we can to learn this language and culture and building relationships. And that means just going to where people are and uh, engaging with them in day-to-day -day life and just meeting them where they're at. So just to give you an example of what that looks like in our country, uh, every spring we have a really big national ethnic holiday called Navruz, which is the Persian New Year. And in our country there's uh, celebrating with dressing up in traditional clothes, eating traditional foods, there's concerts and sporting events. Um, well, a year ago I was invited by a good friend to go meet a mutual friend of ours uh, at his village to go watch a wrestling tournament. And I really didn't know what to expect um, because uh, I was, and I was a bit surprised when we got there and there were a ton of people there to watch this wrestling tournament. And uh, one thing that you should know about our culture in our country is that they're very, very hospitable. They will uh, bend over backwards for their guests. Well, we get to the tournament and we're standing behind a crowd and we meet up with our, our other friend. And next thing you know, um, I'm being dragged past the, the crowd, the barrier into the area where uh, they're doing the actual wrestling. And, um, you know, some guys immediately go to stop my friend and he's explaining, hey, he's my guest, he's here all the way from America, you know, please let him, you know, come through. And, and I'm just trying to tell my friend, no, no, it's, it's perfectly fine. Uh, I can watch, you know, here on the sidelines like everybody else, uh, but he would not hear it. Uh, and, you know, this official looking guy, he looks at me, he shakes my hand and just sort of confirms, you, you are from America? And, and I go into a, a normal spiel, it's, yes, I'm American, um, I'm a student here learning Persian, and uh, he lets me in, and, and I sit down right next to the mat, next to the journalists and the people competing, and uh, it was just, I just felt really awkward, <laughs> because even my friends weren't allowed to sit in there. Uh, well, the morning is progressing, and they're doing their wrestling, and my one friend from the village comes over with a guy who is emceeing this event, and they say uh, they want me to address the crowd. <laughs> um, so they kind of intermittently have visiting dignitaries and so forth, people from the government, uh, and they give these well wishes, which they, they call a suhan in, in the language, which is sort of just like a toast or a blessing. Um, and apparently just by being American, I qualified uh, as having enough status to give my suhan. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm thinking carefully, okay, I'm going to word this. Um, you know, what am I going to say? Because public speaking is nerve-wracking in your own language, let alone uh, one that you're learning in front of native speakers. Um, and I forgot to mention this, but this, this crowd is huge. Uh, I'm talking like every single man in the village is there, easily 2,000 people. Uh, so the MC introduces me, hey everyone, we have a special guest today, this is Brother Naeem, which is the name I use over there, uh, and he's all the way from America visiting today, and I take the microphone and say something along the lines of, hey, I'm just very happy to be here, thank you for your hospitality, um, and want you all to have a very blessed Navaroos today. And to my surprise, everyone clapped for me, and I thought, okay, that, that didn't go so bad. Um, well, then a short while later, the MC comes back, and he's, he's uh, telling me, hey, the people really love that. Do you have any short poems or songs in our language uh, <laughs> that you can recite? And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> he says, no problem. Let me send your friend over. He'll help you. Uh, so my friend comes over, who's actually one of my language helpers also, um, he's teaching me the, the language, and I tell him, um, yeah, this is what they want, and, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to tell the guy, I don't know any poems or anything, and being the very helpful friend that he is, he says, hey, you know, Chucky Chucky Broni Bahor, and you should sing that, just do a couple of verses, please, the people will just really love it. 
And I'm thinking, oh, great. Uh, as he runs off to go tell the guy, yes, he's going to sing the song. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm really going to have to do this. So this song is a very popular song um, you know, from one of their country's most beloved singers. It's a song everyone would know. So the MC comes back and says, okay, are you ready? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. Uh, so I get on the mic again, and just to give you some idea, uh, this, it's extremely loud in this stadium, and this little PA system, it's not by any means designed for singing, and I can't even hear myself through it, and the MC is, you know, he's telling me, okay, you know, you're really going to have to belt it out for everyone to hear, and <laughs> for those of you that know me, you know, my, my comfort zone has to be like, it's all the way back in Bakersfield, and here I am in the middle of Asia about to sing Chucky Chucky Brony Bahor for 2,000 men in the middle of Asia, and I sing the first two verses, which I know, which of course go, Chucky Chucky Brony Bahori Shirinas Dayo Doranturo. It's sort of a love song between a man and a woman. It means uh, the pitter-patter of spring rain is sweet. I have you in my memory. Um, I was full-on expecting to have 2,000 people just rolling on the floor laughing at me, and I'm just singing. I'm thinking, I'm never going to be able to show my face in this village again. <laughs> Most embarrassing day of my life. But to my surprise, people were clapping and cheering, and they were just so happy that this American, um, and it sort of put us Americans on this pedestal as being the epitome of success in the world, what it means you know, to make it, would come to their little country, learn their language, and even care to learn one of their favorite songs. And you know what? Uh, a couple hours later, the MC comes back and he says, hey, people have been going and coming from work. Uh, you know, would you mind singing the song again? <laughs> <laughs> so the people who missed it, they can hear it. And I did, yeah, did the encore performance. Uh, so I think the point of this story I'm trying to make is that we can't underestimate the power of meeting people where they're at, of walking a mile in their shoes, of seeking to understand them. And today we're going to look at how Paul modeled that um, with the church in Corinth, just with total commitment and focus for the sole purpose of bringing the gospel to those who need it. And we're going to see how uh, we can apply these same exact principles today here in Bakersfield and even at the, at the ends of the earth. So uh, let's open to 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, and I'll go ahead and open, open us in prayer. Father God, we just uh, pray as, as we open your word today and um, we hear it, just that you would give us ears to hear and soft hearts to receive uh, any wisdom or insight that you would have for us, God. And I just pray as I speak today that it would be your words and not mine um, that are spoken and that this would all be to your glory. In the name of your Son, I pray. Amen. So starting in verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." So as we look at the text today, I just want us to pay careful attention to what Paul is sacrificing. And I pick that word very carefully because I think there's a certain aspect we see here of taking something voluntarily and laying it at the altar of, of God for his glory. Um, so Paul sacrificed a lot, if you, if you know his story, for the sake of the gospel. And during this, uh, his time on earth, but um, today I really just want to highlight three of these specific sacrifices that we see in this section. So Paul starts off his message by saying that he's made himself a servant, which um, is a word we have in the ESV translation, but some Bible scholars argue that it would be better to act, you know, more accurate to translate this word as slave uh, from the Greek word doula. And being a slave in the Roman Empire was to be essentially not human. In ancient legal documents that archaeologists have found, um, you know, that have tabulated people's estates and such, it was common practice to account for slaves under the ledger under uh, a column for tools and instruments. 
and they were considered as a fixture of the property um, where they worked. So it's safe to say that slaves didn't have a lot of freedoms or rights. And Paul is saying that he has this tremendous freedom in Christ, which is totally his right as a follower of Jesus, but he's willing to sacrifice his freedom for the sake of winning more people to Christ. For example, in the following sentence, he talks about becoming a Jew to the Jews. And this might strike you as a little odd as it did me at first glance, because we know that Paul was a very zealous Jew for a good chunk of his life. Um, And it really shouldn't be that hard for him to fit in with Jews. But what he's actually referencing here, we get a glimpse of in the book of Acts. Uh, So in Acts 21, we have this little narrative where Paul goes to Jerusalem, and the Jewish believers there, they they pull Paul aside and say, hey, uh, some people here are worried that you're trying to get us to totally abandon our culture and customs. And this is really causing some problems um, for some people who, you know, they want to hold on to some of these things. So we're going to need you to take these four guys uh, who have taken a Nazarite vow and pay their expenses and participate publicly just to reassure everyone that you haven't become, you know, anti-Jewish. So of all the things Paul could have said in that moment, like, you know, are you serious? We, we all might die any day from the same exact guys I used to hang out with, and all you care about is just me trying to prove that I care about our customs, or even, uh, well, that's their problem. I know I'm right, and, you know, they can just deal with it. So instead, what does Paul do? Um, we don't know all of the conversation that took place, but we do know the result. Paul humbly accepts, and he goes through with their wishes for the sake of appeasing some Jewish believers. He takes his freedom, and he sacrifices it for the sake of their faith and the unity in the church. So in cross-cultural missions, this is foundational to how we must conduct ourselves uh, in another culture. There can be, it can be so easily for there to be barriers between us uh, that we never get to the point of sharing the gospel, or if we did, it would just fall on deaf ears. And a great example I have of this is from one of our professors when we trained at Radius, which is a church planning school for people going uh, cross-culturally. Um, my professor's name you know, was Brooks, uh, Brooks Buser, who served in Papua New Guinea, and he was in a tribe called the Yembi And when they entered the tribe, he and his wife had to be adopted into different clans um, to become part of the tribe. Well, Brooks's adopted father was the richest man in the village, and one day he pulled Brooks aside and said, hey, I notice uh, you're wearing a few different pairs of shorts, and you know, I only have two, and as your, you know, your father and the richest guy in the village, it's kind of making me look bad. Um, you know, you're kind of showing me up here. Do you think you could just wear two of your pairs of shorts you know, at a time until they wear out, and, and then you can replace them? So was Brooks doing anything wrong? No, absolutely not. Um, The jungle where he lived, it's 24-7, it's like a sauna. It's hot, it's sticky, it's humid, and no one can fault you for wanting to put on a different outfit each day so you can at least experience a brief moment of feeling, you know, clean uh, (laughs) before humidity inevitably sets in. But following Paul's example, Brooks agreed, and he did what his tribal father requested because he knew this sacrifice uh, of his freedom might result in more people being saved. To us Christians in America, we are so blessed. We have freedom in Christ, first and foremost, and we have so many protections under the law and constitution of America that people living abroad can only dream of. But what I want to challenge you with today is um, to perfectly consider, prayerfully consider how those freedoms can be sacrificed for God for the sake of our unbelieving neighbors or even our brothers and sisters here in the church. And I do want to add uh, a caveat to this. It is possible to go too far. If we just look at the issue of LGBTQ topics in the church, we can see all kinds of extremes from the Westboro Baptist Church picketing soldiers' funerals and saying stuff like, we're glad your son died because this is God's punishment against America for homosexuality. And then you have the other extreme of churches saying, LGBTQ lifestyles aren't only not a sin, but they're perfectly welcome to lead our churches. And I think the guiding principle here has to be that we ought to be willing to sacrifice our freedoms in order to not create obstacles for people to come hear the gospel, because the gospel is already going to be offensive um, to the ears of sinners, but 
Uh, also, our view and regard of the gospel needs to be so high that it's not only worth sacrificing uh, for, it's perfect as it is. So we don't need to water it down or try to make it more palatable for people. So to walk in that middle ground, what does it look like? Paul says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Here, of course, he's referring to the Gentiles. And to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, we see Paul really engages with them. Um, and in that, we know that Paul had to sacrifice his comfort. Being a religious Jew meant the exclusion of Gentiles to the extremes of not entering their houses, eating with them, and so forth, lest you be made unclean. Well, to engage with the Gentiles, Paul had to do all of that as well as eat what they ate, learn about their culture, and engage with their religion. And these were uh, things that would have been taboo for Paul from a very early age. And also Paul is here interacting with people whose morality was just totally warped. So going into another culture, it is uncomfortable. In Central Asia, where we live, my wife got connected with this local woman who was in a tough situation and really needed a job. So we ended up hiring her to help us around the house once a week. And she's become a really good friend to Shannon, and um, she just loves her daughter. She's a really sweet lady. Well, one day she shows up on our door, uh, just distraught, crying, bruised, telling my wife that her husband had hit her and thrown her out. And long story short, we ended up spending all day trying to figure out what we could do to help her in a culturally appropriate way. Um, and since it's an Islamic society, and on paper, women have rights, but in practice, the lives of women are very, very difficult, and they're essentially powerless in their homes. And needless to say, there's nothing like social programs or women's shelters that we could you know, take her to to help her. Well, thankfully, she was able to find a place to stay with uh, some of her, her friends, um, in the country, and eventually things calmed down for her, and she returned home, and um, you know she went back. And fast forward a few weeks, she's inviting um, our family to their their family's house for iftar, uh, um, is Ramadan iftar, is the ceremonial breaking of the fast. And so I'm in a room with her husband and all the other male guests because they separate men and women. <clears throat> And they're just doing their prayers and their rituals because the sun had just gone down. And I'm just there, sitting there thinking as they're doing this, this guy beats his wife and all these other guys are probably abusing their wives also. And they don't think anything of it. You know, in their eyes, they're, they're godly men. And I remember just praying, God, give me wisdom. And the truth is that as we are saved and being saved through the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, it gets more and more uncomfortable to be in the world. But it's to the world that we're called to go. There's probably nothing I love more about being here in the U.S. on furlough than being around my fellow believers. <clears throat> it feels so good to be in loving community in small groups, in youth groups, at church. Um, but I want to challenge you. So you think through how you can be strategic in your time outside of church. Or maybe God has an opportunity for you to be in a place that is uncomfortable, where you can be a witness that is desperately needed. Um, it could be as close as your relative's house or the homeless shelter downtown. Or it could be serving overseas on the opposite side of the world like, um, like us. But how are you going to use your greatest gift, your life-giving faith, to inspire transformation in those communities that you have access to? Third, Paul says that to the weak, he became weak. And we know from the context of this passage, Paul here is referring to this bigger argument that he's making uh, in this part of the epistle, which is an appeal to the church, which is struggling with disunity, especially over this particular issue of meat offered to idols. The Gentile believers didn't feel comfortable eating uh, the food that had been offered to idols since it seemed too much like giving approval to their former way of life and religion. Uh, whereas the Jewish believers were saying, what's the big deal? It's just me. Just get over it. So Paul here is equating knowledge with weakness and strength. And this whole uh, buildup of Paul talking about surrendering his rights culminates in this third sacrifice of strength. To make a very brief paraphrase, Paul is saying, you can't just hammer people with knowledge and expect to win them over. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul makes a statement that uh, this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. Later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 13, verse 2, we have this excerpt you probably recognize that says, 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Love gives us the ability to set ourselves aside and use that knowledge compassionately to build others up. But let me tell you, it's not easy to love your own believing spouse, let alone unbelievers. Uh, I'll never forget this past winter um, there in Central Asia, all three of us, my wife, me, and my, my daughter, um, who was five months at the time, we all ended up getting COVID. And our daughter, Emery, got really sick. Um, we were also struggling with food allergies that she had that hadn't been diagnosed yet, um, which compounded things. And Emery just wasn't keeping any food down. And we had to physically be holding her the whole time to get her to sleep. And we spent an entire day and night just awake, rocking her, trying to get her to eat, and having her throw up every time uh, she did. And, and she was just crying, and we couldn't figure out how we were going to soothe her. And finally, after a sleepless night, she was getting really pale and lethargic. And we were worried she was going to, you know, she was getting very dehydrated. And we decided, okay, we need, to, we need to take her to a doctor. But since we had COVID, we were turned away from our normal clinics, and we had to go to the state hospital. <clears throat> and I won't go into all of the details for the sake of time, but we get to this hospital and just have a really frustrating experience. The doctor's trying to tell us, oh, she's just got pneumonia. All the babies have that right now. It's, it's fine. And, you know, kind of did a, acted like she was, you know, checking her, just kind of took the stethoscope. Yeah, 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 she's okay. And, um, of course, we didn't feel she was okay. <laughs> she didn't look okay. And we're on the phone with an American doctor who's there in the country with us and some of our, our local friends trying to navigate the cultural side because, um, you know, we really think, she's going to need some IV fluids, or she's not going to make it. Um, but the doctor has put her foot down, and you know she's given her opinion, and she's not going to listen to us. So we're left with no other option uh, just but to go home and, and see if we can try to keep giving her milk and doing what we've been doing. And we step outside this hospital to return home, and suddenly a nurse comes running after us saying, hey, wait. Um, and for a second... I get my hopes up thinking, you know, she's got some idea or some option to help us. Uh, but then she says, hey, uh, I have a son who's studying English. I'm going to call him. Can you please talk to him so he can practice uh, his English just a little? Mind you, here we are standing in the winter air, snow on the ground. My wife is holding our pale, sick little five-month-old who had just been, uh, we had just spent a sleepless night and morning, sick with worry, crying, begging God to help our little girl, and just standing there on the hospital steps at a loss for what we can do for our daughter. And this nurse who had heard our story comes chasing after us because she wants me to help her son practice English. These are the people God has sent us to love because these are the people we were when God came for us. So I look her in the eyes, I take the phone, and I say, hi, because I want to be a slave for the sake of the gospel. And I guess I was thinking, what if this is the kid who might get a chance to hear the gospel, but refuses to listen because of that one interaction with a rude Christian? And I only chatted with the kid for a, a few seconds, and I said, I'm sorry, but I've really got to go. And thankfully that day, hundreds of you were praying for us, um, and God was merciful. And slowly, Emery was able to keep little bits of milk down, and praise God, slowly, slowly, we're able to nurse her back to health, and praise God, she just celebrated her first birthday last month, and she's a, a happy little, little thing, so we're so grateful for that. But in that moment, I was just so angry at that nurse, thinking just how inconsiderate, how self-centered you have to be. Uh, and honestly, such interactions, they aren't that uncommon, if we're being honest, in, in the world today and even back in Paul's time. Yet Paul became all things to all men 
for the sake of the gospel because he owes everything to it. Jesus came to earth. He laid down his freedoms, his comfort, his strength to live in the dirt alongside sinners like us. He taught us. He showed us his compassion. He performed miracles and sacrificed his own life to die in our place. In Christ, we have more than we could ever ask or deserve. How could Paul become all things for all men? How could he not? How can we not? For the sake of the cross, for the sake of our Savior, for the sake of the gospel to which we owe everything. Father God, uh, we just thank you today that we do live in a country where we can hear your word freely and we have access to it. We just pray as the word was brought today, Lord, this, that uh, you would allow our, our hearts to, to grow and, and be changed by, um, just by your word. And we just thank you so much for these examples that we have of Paul, who um, asks us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, of just, uh, of course, Christ being the one who lived the perfect life that, uh, that we can follow after. And even these examples like the ex-Lord who, just what a testimony to your goodness and your grace, 33 years of service overseas. We just thank you for um, these people who have lived out their faith so courageously and bravely. And, and we thank you, Lord, today for, for um, all of your, your servants who are serving you cross-culturally overseas, uh, many of whom are our, our personal friends, God, just that you continue to provide for them and uh, just give them the grace to make your name known uh, so that, um, as we heard today, all the nations may rejoice and praise your name. We thank you, Lord, for your son, most of all, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So with that, let's stand together.